Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Today we're going to continue our study on John chapter 7 by addressing a mistake that many people make. Sometimes we judge a book by its cover and refuse to investigate further. However, this passage of scripture should show us why that's such a foolish thing to do. So if you've ever formed a conclusion about someone or something and look for a reason why later on, then turn your Bibles to John chapter 7 verses 32 through 52 because this message is entitled, Just Give Me a Reason. Have you ever looked for a reason to dislike someone? You know, sometimes we make up our minds about people and then we look for all the reasons why later on. For example, if you're a dad with a dating teenage daughter, you do this with all the boys she brings home. And you might say, I don't like him. And when asked why, you might respond, because I don't like him. And while it's your job to protect your daughter, especially from selfish boys who just want to use her as if she's an object, isn't it a little unfair? Just a little bit? You know, I think we're all guilty of unfair judgments from time to time. For example, many people make unfair judgments about the president. I mean, Donald J. Trump could save a hundred babies from a burning building and people would still argue that he is the Antichrist. On the other hand, Trump could execute a pregnant mother on live TV while standing in the Oval Office and some people will still think that he hung the moon. Now, sometimes we make up our minds and nothing can convince us to change them. Did you know, though, that a woman decides whether or not she will consider marrying a guy within the first three minutes of meeting him? It's where the concept of speed dating comes from. You get three minutes to introduce yourself, and the bell rings, and then you go on to the next person. In the first three minutes, I mean, are you, are you serious? I always kind of felt like that was totally unfair. Because I know great guys that will not come out of their shell with girls for at least three hours. And... And, you know, I know some jerks who present themselves really, really well, at least for the first three days. And, you know, I know I'm not convincing any women to reconsider this tactic. Just don't come crying to me when you discover that you shot down the guy who later became a billionaire and instead unknowingly married an axe murderer, okay? I don't want to hear it. And my wife argues, on the other hand, that at least women give guys three minutes. Guys decide when they're standing across the room. Well, sometimes we decide whether we like someone... And then we look for all the reasons why later on. But have you ever been on the flip side of that? Have you ever experienced a time where it didn't matter what you did? You just couldn't convince someone to change their mind about you? Let me share a quick story with you before we dive into Scripture. All of my girlfriend's daddies didn't like me. And I will confess, it's for a pretty good reason, I suppose. But there um, was one dad in particular who hated my guts. And, and I dated his daughters for two years, so I know I must have driven him crazy. One time I was riding through town with a friend of mine who was a girl while my girlfriend was stuck at home. Now, before you start accusing me of things in your mind, you should know that, number one, my girlfriend's dad refused to allow her to date. And number two, my friend in the car that was a girl, she was a girl I had grown up with in church. And, and we were just friends. I'm not a cheater. Well, let me back up. When I was a sophomore in high school, now you're already forming conclusions about me. When I was a sophomore in high school, I kissed a girl who was not my girlfriend, and I felt so guilty about it that I immediately, I immediately broke up with my girlfriend. I thought, we can't be together. Why? Just don't worry about it. We can't. 
So I don't really have it in me to be a cheater, at least not one who can get away with it, okay? Anyway, I was riding through town, and and, uh, I pulled through the neighborhood Sonic, and a canine police officer saw me in the car with someone who wasn't my girlfriend and started following me. Um, And, uh, you you know, you might be wondering, well, why would he care? Well, because this was my girlfriend's dad's best friend. That's why. So he's tailgating me out of town, and, and he's just looking for a reason to pull me over. I know it. He knows it. And let me give you some advice if you're ever in a similar situation. Just pull over before they find something. If you suspect that he's following you, just pull over. And when he comes over the window, say, can I help you? That's what I should have done. But what happened is, is this guy, this cop, was looking for a reason to pull me over. And sooner or later, I'm telling you, if you have this happen, they will find a reason. He pulled me over on a totally bogus reason. And, and he just to see who was in the car with me and to confront me about it, I guess. But it gets worse. I later find out that while he had me pulled over, he calls my girlfriend's dad and says, Hey, I've got your daughter's boyfriend in the car with another girl. Should I give him a ticket? Yeah, I know. That is so horrible. And you might be wondering, he, he let me go. But you know what? I'm still mad about it. I'm still upset about it because it doesn't matter. The damage was done. My girlfriend's dad was just looking for a reason to hate my guts. And now he had all the reason he needed. You see, in his mind, he had all the reason he needed to treat me like a piece of garbage because I was a cheater. Which I think goes to show that when we decide we don't like someone and then we look for all the reasons why later, any reason will do. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. You see, we not only jump to conclusions with people, Sometimes we do the same thing with our beliefs about God and His Word. Sometimes we go through the Bible with our conclusions and we look for verses to support our conclusions. For example, I've heard several people use the passage where Jesus turned water into wine to justify going out and getting plastered. That passage does not have anything to do with Jesus condoning getting fall down drunk. In fact, several passages of Scripture speak against that. The Apostle John wrote that passage to show how Jesus was the Messiah that would come and how Jesus used Jewish tradition to bring forward a new covenant. Now today we're going to study a passage of scripture where several religious men began with a conclusion about Jesus. And it's my prayer that we strongly consider some of the conclusions that we might have had and we might have begun our faith in Christ with and also understand that we should consider some conclusions that we've made about other people. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7 verses 32 through 52 and we're going to begin our study. So John chapter 7 Verses 32 through 52, this is what it says. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. What were they whispering? That this is the Messiah. This this has got to be the guy. So then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. And Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not be able to find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Would he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus has not yet been glorified. On hearing these words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. And others said, He is the Christ. And still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will come down, uh, come from David's family and from Bethlehem, a town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Then each went. To his own home. Father, I'm coming to you right now and just ask God that you just reveal your truth through the scripture. Father, I pray that you help me and equip me to um, share your truth, Father, and I pray that we would not go to scripture with our own conclusions, that you would reveal to us what your word has to say. I love you, Father. Thank you for thank you for your word. Pray that you would uh, speak your truth to us now. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, just a few points I want to make about this passage. Sometimes we make up our minds for reasons we would be ashamed to admit. For example, do you know why I despise LeBron James? It's not because I've watched him throw a tantrum on the basketball court or because I've seen him overreact to a minor injury. It's because he plays for the wrong team. I mean, that's pain. it pains me to admit that, but I mean, I think if he played for my team, I wouldn't care about those things. I'd probably have his jersey. I don't like him, really, because, yeah, this is painful, but I'm jealous of his talent. I'd like for him to play for my team. You see, Pharisees, they hated Jesus because he refused to fall under their authority and play for, quote, the right team. Not quote, but in, I have quotations around that, the right team. I, I want you to recall just for a second about how Nicodemus went to Jesus at night in John 3, 2. Why at night? Because he didn't want to be seen by the people. Yes, but he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs and wonders that you're doing if God were not with him. Notice he said, we know. What Nicodemus was saying is that we've all concluded that you're from God. We've had lots of conversations about you. You have to be from God. We all know it. He went to him because he wanted to recruit Jesus to fall under the authority of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They, they knew he was from God. They wanted to make sure that he was on, quote, God's team. And I, I think it's important for us to understand that, that, that the people, they were beginning to come to their own conclusions about Jesus and as the Messiah. And it was this is what troubled this is really what troubled the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law. That in verse 32, we see the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they heard these things that people were saying about Jesus, and they sent temple guards to arrest him. Now, something noteworthy about the Sanhedrin is, is that they had the authority to arrest people, a responsibility Rome had given them so that they could keep the peace, but they couldn't determine whether someone was a criminal. It's the equivalent of a citizen's arrest, basically. Remember how Jesus was eventually tried by the Jewish religious court and then he was taken to a Roman criminal court for sentencing and Pilate didn't want to do it? That should lead us to consider how much authority did you do they really have? I mean, like, Jesus refused to come under their authority 
And because of that, they refused to believe that he was the Messiah, and they had all this influence over the people. They hated the idea that someone not under their authority could be from God. And so they formed all of their conclusions about him. But the question that's bothered me about this, this, this study is, is that if they really knew the Scriptures, how could they reject Jesus as the Messiah? I mean, why do Jews reject Jesus today as the Messiah? And if you're wondering this too, you might be interested to know that they use the words of Moses to reject Jesus. Really? Moses? I thought he, you know, he had good things to say about the prophet that will come. Well, this is what he says in Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 19. Uh, He says, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and that he will tell them everything that I command him. And if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I I myself will call them to account. And we would argue that these verses clearly talk about Jesus. But the Jews instead looking look to the following verses. They look to the next verse and the next three verses. It says, But a prophet who presumes to, presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? And this is what he says, if a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord, what he proclaims does not come to take place or come true. That is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So this is just another perfect example of how someone can begin with a conclusion and then look for passages of scripture to support their conclusion. To which one might ask, well, aren't we doing the same thing? Don't we as Christians begin with the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah and then we look for Scripture to justify our conclusion? To which I would respond, well, everything comes down to what God said in that verse. If a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord, what he proclaims does not take place or come true, that's a message the Lord hasn't spoken. So the question is, did the things that Jesus say come true? Did what was said about Jesus really come true or not? Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, talking about his body, and I will raise it up again in three days. So did Jesus raise from the dead or not? I would challenge you not to start with a conclusion on this. Look to scripture and allow it to form your conclusions. These Jews refused Jesus as the Messiah. Really, not because of, of the scripture, but because he refused to play for their team. And because the leaders rejected Jesus, the people who looked to them as the godly authority, they were led astray, still being led astray today. You see, in verse 33, Jesus tells them, I am with you only for a short time, and then I, 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 can go, I must go to the one who sent me. And you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. I believe this was Jesus' way of explaining to the Jews the same mistake that we seem to fall into at times. We say to ourselves, ah, there'll be plenty of time to get right with God later. I've got some sinning to do. I'd like to live for me and what I want right now. I'll get right with God tomorrow. And Jesus is saying to them, don't you realize that this is a limited invitation and that if you don't come now, you're probably not going to come later? As James said, he said, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Essentially, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know when your number is going to be called. 
Jesus is extending this invitation, but the Jews who failed in their conviction were afraid to come to him because the authorities hadn't concluded that he was the Christ. John 7.13 says that no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. You see, the Jewish leaders, they created confusion in people who followed them. And the ironic part is that it wasn't their responsibility to confuse them, but it was their responsibility to help lead the people to God, not away from it. And here's God standing in their presence. And the people, they just had so much confusion. They said, well, what does he mean? Where does he, where does he intend to go that we can't find him? Will, will he not go and teach the Greeks? What, what, does that, what does he mean? What does he mean? I don't get it. The Jewish leaders should have stepped up and said, what does it matter what he means? He was clear about the limited time. Turn to him. But see, they were instead too busy looking for a way to condemn him because they had formed conclusions about him. Now, I want to move on, but before I do, I think it's important for each of us to realize that we very likely have people following us. If you have a relationship with Christ, then I can promise you somebody looks up to you. And it's not your job to help lead them in, in, in how to live in a worldly life. It's your job to help lead them towards Jesus, not away from him. And whenever we form our conclusions about Jesus and when we form our conclusions about others, we look for all, and look for all the reasons why later, those people who are looking up to us, they're led astray. Which is why it's extremely important to check our motives and about you know, our conclusions, even if we're ashamed to admit them. People are following us, and, and, and when we don't lead them towards Christ, we just confuse them. I also point out that when we condemn others, when we form our conclusions and look for all the reasons why later, it should show us that we're spiritually lacking. This passage says that on the last and greatest day, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now there's a tremendous amount of irony in this verse when you understand what happens on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration that God uh, it's to God for bringing them through another year of abundance. On the seventh day of the celebration, a procession follows a high priest who carries with him two golden pitchers. One is filled with wine, and the other he takes to the pool of Siloam, which is consequently where Jesus put the mud on the, mud on the, the blind man's eyes and tells him to go wash, which is a completely different sermon entirely. But, but they go to the pool of Siloam, and the high priest fills the other pitcher with water. So one is full of wine, the other full of, is full of water. Now this pool is filled if there has been an abundant rain on the land. So this is kind of a symbolism like God has provided for us, but they have to trek all the way over there. And then the high priest leads this procession, procession of musicians and people cheering and dancing all around him. Everybody's celebrating. He leads them back to the temple. And he pours one of the pitchers, the pitcher of wine, to one silver basin as a drink offering to the Lord, and the other pitcher of water into another silver basin as thanks for that provision. So an ancient rabbi once wrote that if you've never seen this celebration, you've never seen true rejoicing. I, I wonder why he'd say that, because maybe I haven't seen true rejoicing. But the whole week is focused on this event of joy, thanksgiving, and celebration. And this is when Jesus stands up in the temple and says, Hey, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Are you kidding, Jesus? We've been drinking all week long. It's been a week full of feasts and celebrations and drinking. Why would anybody be thirsty? 
You see, this story contrasts the woman at the well who was is at the bottom of her of the barrel in her life, and, and she just jumped towards an opportunity for living water. You mean I don't have to walk all the way out here? Well, guess what? They had to walk all the way out to the Pool of Siloam, and they had to walk all the way back to the temple. Jesus is saying, hey, if anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. And I will you know, give him a, a well of living water that will spring up inside of them. But why would Jesus stand up at a celebration to which there is no comparison for celebration and say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink? Well, good question. I'm glad you asked. The reason why is because our spiritual thirst cannot be quenched by worldly things. Now, perhaps you had an occasion in your life when you should be full of joy, but you aren't. And maybe you look up, you realize that you have everything that you've ever wanted. You chase this stuff, and, and you've got it all, but you still feel like something is missing. Maybe after night after night of celebrating and partying and living for yourself, you realized that something is missing, something's not right. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. He said, the things of this world cannot satisfy our spiritual thirst. Maybe right now you're feeling like something is missing in you. Maybe you're discovering that for, for some reason or another, you're empty. And I'll tell you, that that's a, a frustrating feeling, but do not dismiss it. Because that is the Holy Spirit communicating to you, your thirst. And Jesus offers living water, and with him we will never thirst. He says, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. See, John tells us that Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only thing, the only one who will satisfy. And just the other day, my wife and I were talking about how we're afraid to follow God sometimes because we're afraid that he'll give us, he'll do the opposite of what Jesus said. Jesus said, you know, do you think, do you really think that God's going to give you a fish or a snake when you ask for a fish and a stone whenever you, whenever you, you ask for some bread? And, and Aaron and I were just talking about it. We're like, I hate that about myself, but yeah, I do. I feel like it's just scary sometimes. I feel like God's going to give us a snake when we're asking for a fish or he's going to give us, a, you know, a stone when we're asking for bread. But you know, in my study, I stumbled across uh, a verse, the, the, the Synoptic Gospels, you know, there are a lot of like, and, and it says it in Matthew, he says it again in Luke, and I stumbled, stumbled across it in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus says, if you then, though are evil, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, I think what it is, is that we ask for fish. And God blows our request out of the water with the Holy Spirit. God says, you're asking for fish, but you know what? That's not going to satisfy. Here's the Holy Spirit instead. Why settle for fish and bread when you can have the Holy Spirit? And what's amazing is that, that it's usually because of the worldly reasons and the worldly things that we form conclusions about others, and we form conclusions about Jesus, and then we look, look for the reasons why later on. And maybe we don't even realize it, but here is, is a tremendous truth, is that everything hidden will come to light. God will bring it to light. In this passage, people start claiming that Jesus is the prophet. Others say he's the Messiah. See, Jews believe that this is not going to be the same person, but 
Notice again, these people formed a conclusion about Jesus by thinking that they knew where he was from. In, in verse uh, 41, it, it says, uh, how could the Christ come from Galilee? Verse 42, does this does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from, Be- from Bethlehem, a town where David lived? See, the people were divided because of Jesus and some wanted to seize him. But once again, we say that they're not able to lay a hand on him. And I, I think this is, is, is incredible. Um you know, God God is going to bring things to us, and He's going to bring things to light. He's going to show us things about ourselves, things that we didn't even know. And and you know, sometimes um, we form our conclusions. We don't even realize that we have conclusions, but God's going to bring it to light. And here, these people that they're confused in in in, um, in verse forty five. I love this. It, it says um, the temple guards came back empty handed. Now I don't know why for some reason, but when I read this verse, I just I keep picturing the guard, you know, the guards as Lenny Smalls from Advice of Men. You know, which way did he go, George? I can't help it. I don't know why. Now you're going to think that too. Uh, they come back empty-handed, and the chief priests and the Pharisees, who otherwise couldn't stand each other, by the way, they ask the temple guards, "Where's Jesus? Why didn't you bring him in?" And they say, "Well, we've never heard anyone speak like him, George." <laughs> The Jewish leaders erupt in rage. They, they said, you mean he's deceived you too? See, these guards were sent to arrest Jesus, but while they were listening for a reason to arrest him, they accidentally started to hear the words he was saying. You see, Jesus says if anybody's thirsty, he was throwing out an invitation, and guess what? Jesus' invitation for anyone who was thirsty, that meant them too. And so they started to realize their spiritual thirst. And when they came back empty-handed, the Jewish leaders were furious. They said, have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob who knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. And sometimes, I got to tell you, you just got to love the beauty of Scripture. Immediately after they say this, they say, look around. Not one Pharisee or member of the Sanhedrin has believed in him. Nicodemus, the Pharisee who went to Jesus at night, speaks up. He says, wait, guys. Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing it, hearing them to find out what he's doing? In other words, wait, guys, it sounds like you've already formed your conclusions about Jesus, and, and now you're looking for all the reasons to justify your prejudices. I, I mean, wait, wait, guys, wait. Now, can you picture the steam coming out of the Jewish leader's ears at this point? I really think God has a sense of humor, and I love it. They turn on him and say, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Which is funny because not not only was Jesus born in Bethlehem, but both Jonah and Hosea, prophets used in the foreshadowing of Christ, both came from Galilee. And what happened, basically what happened is they said, none of us believe. And Nicodemus says, well, wait, guys, uh, we, we already formed a conclusion about Jesus. And they say, shut up, you. And everybody goes home. I mean, it's really funny when you think about it. The Jewish leaders want, are unable to hold on to their prejudices about Jesus and, they, and, and fall on the side of righteousness. That they, they had this, 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 this secret reason for hating Jesus, and God starts bringing it to light. And Nicodemus is like, well, I think we're being a little unfair here. We've already formed our conclusions. And, and, and these men turned on him too. See, the best part is that, that the men who were looking for a reason to arrest him and the man who went to Jesus in John chapter 3 with an agenda to get him on the right team, they made a terrible mistake. 
These men made the mistake of letting Jesus speak to their conclusions, which was, as they discovered, not a mistake at all. Because when Jesus started to speak, their conclusions started to crumble. Jesus showed Nicodemus that he was lacking. He showed the temple guards that they were thirsty. He showed these men that they were empty. And there was an open invitation to come to him and be filled. You see, when these men who had their conclusions set went to Jesus, they were shaken by his words. Jesus is capable of breaking down even the most hardened heart. The Jewish leaders refused to allow Jesus to speak. And to which we might say, what a bunch of morons. But are we really that different? Remember, they rejected Jesus, not because he wasn't the Messiah. Scripture clearly showed that he was. That's what Jesus said. It's because they didn't want him to be the Messiah. They started with the conclusion, and they found the reasons later on. They couldn't really find a good reason. They had to turn on him and and, and twist people to to condemn him. Much of the time, we similarly don't want Jesus to have lordship over our lives. i got plenty of sinning to do, Jesus. I mean, I've got, okay, fine, I don't want to go out and sin. I just want to live for me. I, I, I I want to accomplish more out of my life. But see, Jesus' invitation is there for anyone who realizes that the things of this world will not quench our thirst. You might think that you know everything that you need to know about God. I've heard it all. I'm not impressed. If you feel that way, it should show you that you are thirsty. You don't know God at all. How could you? How could you know God and say, I know everything there is to know? See, the Jewish leaders, they refuse to allow Jesus to speak. And we have to be willing to allow Jesus to speak to our conclusions about Him, about God, about Scripture, and about others. Jesus didn't just come to give us eternal life. He came to give us an abundant life here. We have got to allow Jesus to speak and listen to what he has to say. And yeah, much of the time, it's going to make us uncomfortable. Maybe he'll show us the real reason why we despise our daughter's boyfriend. Maybe it's because we're jealous of her affection and we want her all to ourselves. And we're going to hate anybody and everybody who comes near her. Maybe. Maybe he'll show us that the reason we don't like that woman at work is because we feel threatened by her. Maybe he'll show us that we really don't like someone because we're jealous. Maybe he'll show us that we haven't submitted to him as Lord because we want to be Lord. We want to be God. And before we dismiss this message and harden our hearts all over again, do we realize, do we really realize that how we treat others is how we treat Christ? Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do also unto me. Matthew 25, 40. These Jewish leaders refused to listen to Christ and give him a fair trial. And because of that, they eventually condemned him to a cross. And when we begin our relationships with others with an already formed conclusion, 
we are no better than the men who nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus went to his end so that we could have a new beginning. And so we must rethink our conclusions about Jesus, about God, about his word, about others, about ourselves. And if you're looking for a reason why, then I tell you, just look to Christ. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.